Quest of Bliss, a podcast about finding light in the darkness. This episode was produced by Cappy Productions. Hello, and welcome back to the Conquest of Bliss. I am here with Paul Krismer from the Happiness Experts Company. How are you today, Paul? It's a pleasure to be here. I'm just fine. Thank you. I'm glad to hear it. I'm really excited. Um, One of the things that we're going to talk about is the concept of positive psychology. Um, And so I wanted to ask you, first of all, that's that's not a company, right? That's a concept. Yeah, it's a a concept, and it's kind of a subfield within the field of psychology. And it really was invented relatively recently as research subjects go. Mm -hmm. It used to be the case that under the broad category of psychological research, almost all of the research was with respect to negative pathology, anxiety, Mm -hmm. depression, and all the different personality disorders and so on. And in the late 1990s, a very uh, interesting gentleman, a guy named Martin Seligman, became the president of the American Psychology Association. And he said, haven't we had enough of this where all we look at is things that are bad? Yeah. And not to say that that isn't a worthwhile subject matter, but wouldn't it be great if we could look at what does it mean for people to be thriving and flourishing and, and how do we get more of that? And out of that, positive psychology was born. And now 20 years later, we really have a pretty stunning body of research that tells us what it is to be happy. Yeah. And I do think that that's so important because it's like, we spend a lot of time saying, this is what's wrong, you know, and, and, and going from that to, okay, like once we, you know, start working on what's wrong, you know, well, where do we go from there? So I think that I was going to say, I think it's cool because it fills that gap. Oh, I keep cutting you off. No, no, it's totally okay. What you're pointing out is, is so true to the problem. And I think it was a problem of psychological research um, in the main, is that they were so focused on things that were wrong that even the goal setting that they had for patients was wrong. Like it was, it was um, too too small, too pathetic. It kind of say if, if negative pathologies counts as minus five, like you're in the fetal position, you're in bed, and you don't want to get out of bed, and and you just close the curtains in your life. Well, that's maybe a negative five, mm-hmm. and and it was a, you know a clinical condition, obviously. And if they made people better, they might take people from kind of negative five to negative two. And we'd say, well, you're no longer pathologically unwell. You're just still <laughs> miserable. And, and that was good enough, right? You'd say, okay, they're no longer clinically anxious. So you're no longer clinically depressed. And while that in and of itself is a really great thing, because people mm-hmm. being clinically anxious and clinically depressed sucks. And I, I've been there years ago. Um, but to work towards flourishing and thriving, and let's pretend that that's like the positive five on the continuum mm-hmm. from negative five mental health pathology to plus five, life couldn't be better. The whole notion was that when we work to move people from wherever they are, minus five, minus two, to higher numbers, not only is life better on a day-to-day basis, but we provide this cushioning so that when the hardships of life come in, whether whatever it is, you know, the loss of a loved one or um, super stressful work or, you know, the, the things mm-hmm, we all job face, loss. job loss, all that stuff. Then instead of trying to go from um, where we were before, minus two back to minus five, mm-hmm. we can work on this continuum towards higher and higher levels of well-being. And let's say we get to plus two or whatever, zero, mm-hmm, whatever mm-hmm. it is. Then when things hit us, we've got this cushion so that we don't become clinically pathological again. again. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. 
That's fantastic. And, you know, you mentioned this is from the 1990s. So I was born in 89. And well, I was going to say what's interesting is I've been kind of exploring happiness and all of this stuff for a really long time. And I really only came into positive psychology um, in the last two years. Yeah. So I think that like, even though the in the psychological field, it's been around since the 90s, I don't think that it's really been in popular circles like 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 the the layman or the random like you know random person on the street would have never heard of it i agree it and and in for some period of time maybe till 2010 or something the body of research really wasn't all that great on a few topics it was pretty good because there were positive psychology topics that existed before we called it positive psychology okay yeah study of mindfulness for example mm-hmm. basically the beatles came back from india in 1968 <laughs> we've been studying that but, but a lot of, if it wasn't one of those specific subcategories within positive psychology, there really wasn't a body of research big enough to talk about until maybe, you know, it's subjective, but let's say 2010. And by 2010, we started feeling some momentum. And now there's a lot of people uh, doing this research. And every year there's brilliant new discoveries and depths of knowledge that we're learning. Simultaneous to that, Karen, you'll forgive me if I run on sometimes, but I, I get excited by this topic. <laughs> Simultaneous to this research, we were also getting really, really good at studying the physicality of the brain, neuroplasticity. Mm-hmm. We could actually start to understand physically what's going on in that biological mechanism of the brain as we had more positive experiences. So these two sciences in some ways have come of age together and yes. they've uh, interacted and um, have common ground on a few fronts. That That is really exciting. I'm actually going to be talking to a neuroscientist tomorrow um, about about exactly that. And I'm really, I'm really excited because I've been kind of watching for, like I said, I've been watching for a long time, trying to figure out my own life for a long time. And, and it's so exciting. You know, there's new stuff every day that, that you see and you're like, oh, that makes sense. Like you can finally fit things together. And, and I think one of the one of the big questions, you know, that a lot of people have about all of this is like, you know, like, where are we starting? What What is happiness, you know, in, in positive psychology terms or just, you know, in your own opinion? Like, like what uh, what is what is happiness to you? Well, in my own opinion, I'd say happiness is a really good pizza with the people you love. <laughs> <laughs> and, but from a clinical or research perspective, um, the original early psychologists, and some of them still use this, had a very unhelpful definition that the layperson can't get any value from. And they'd say, mm-hmm. happiness is the subjective well-being of an individual. So whatever their own perspective is, they can say how happy they are, and that is what happiness is. And it's not a very useful definition. (laughs) But there's another woman whose name is Barbara Fredrickson. She's a professor out of the University of North Carolina. And she wrote a very useful and practical definition of happiness. And um, it's worth you and I exploring a little bit. She basically said this. She said, happiness is any one of these emotions... And there's different words that you can give for them, but they're generally any one of these 10 emotions. She said they're joy, mm-hmm. gratitude, mm-hmm. serenity, interest yeah. or curiosity, hope, pride, inspiration, amusement, awe, and love. Oh, I love that so much. Yeah. And the last one, love, she says, really, that's any combination 
of any of the previous descriptive words when they come together. So we could say, in English, we do this kind of funny thing. We say, oh, I love ice cream. Mm-hmm. Like, oh yeah, okay, I'm, I'm interested in ice cream and it gives me some joy. And then when I say, oh, I love my two sons, you know, <laughs> I, I've got pride, I've got hope, I've got gratitude, inspiration, and all these things. But when whenever we use love, we're really associating that with multiple prior defined positive emotions. And often, and I hope your listeners um, pick up this part of this conversation is that in today's age where people are talking about happiness a little bit more, and sometimes there's this sense that, well, you quote unquote should be happy. Mm, I hate well, the word now I've got an additional pressure on me. I mean, <laughs> life is hard enough already and now I should feel a certain way. And then when we think of happiness, we might think, oh, I should have a grin from ear to ear and <laughs> like be skipping in the meadow with like a happy, you know, on, on drugs or something. <laughs> or a cartoon. <laughs> yeah, like a cartoon. Very good. And relatively infrequently do I personally experience that kind of positive emotion. Mm -hmm. And knowing some of these other words that I described, um, then we have opportunities to recognize our happiness in other ways. So for example, one of the ways that you might even note it in this conversation that I really get a lot of positive feelings in my life is through my curiosity. Me too, yes. Very good. (laughs) That's why you're doing what you're doing, which is awesome. So you could see me on the couch reading a book, and if you looked at the expression on my face, it would be blank. (laughs) I'd be turning the pages, and then at some point you might say, hey, Paul, what is it you're reading? And my eyes would brighten up, and I'd say, hey, Kara, I've got this really cool thing I'm reading all about, blah, blah, blah. (laughs) And you would see how my curiosity, my interest was making me happy. Mm -hmm. And I want your listeners to think about that, that as I mentioned those words, you know, do you experience gratitude or peacefulness or inspiration or amusement? Do you laugh readily or awe, which is that one usually has few words related to it, but you might be standing by a beautiful pond in the forest and go, wow. Yeah, where you're like verklempt. You're so overcome with this, this sense that you don't even have words for it. Exactly right. And all of those are equally good positive emotions. So when people say, hey, why aren't you happy? <laughs> Well, if they think you should look like a grinning cartoon all the time (laughs) to be happy, that's just plain wrong. There's a Mm -hmm. lot of other ways of experiencing happiness. And for each of us, there's probably some of those emotions are more readily brought into our lives than some others. Mm -hmm. That totally makes sense. That totally makes sense. And I think um, I was just speaking to someone about uh, genetic predisposition to happiness and stuff like that. And I think that that plays in too, is a lot of people have this preset definition of what they think happiness means. And they might not be predisposed to access that easily, you know, whether it's curiosity or like any one of those 10, you might not have access to those easily. So you think, oh, I'm not happy because I'm looking at happy as joy. You know, I think joy is a really common one where people associate that's that's the same thing. And you might be predisposed, though, to some of the other ones, like you're easily inspired or you're easily, you know, in awe or you're very grateful and appreciative. And and I think that it's it's valuable to note that that having a different definition and understanding that it encompasses many things can sort of be comforting when you feel like, oh, I am predisposed to be unhappy. Well, no, you're just easier to access other sides of happiness. You've said that so well. The science completely supports it. Like, I think probably genetically, I was born curmudgeonly. You know, that's what my (laughs) genetic history is. And so you'll rarely see a big joyful face on my face. But 
but because I was born in a somewhat intellectual family and I have a kind of agile curiosity, then those are, there are some ways for me to really improve what genetically wasn't a great set for me. But if I apply myself in the areas where more positive emotions are readily acceptable or readily uh, brought into my life, mm-hmm. and I can move up that scale from negative five closer to that positive five end of the scale. Oh yes, that's that's so perfect. And you've mentioned you've mentioned a couple times now um, the relationships that you have in your life, and how how do you think that our relationships play into that? You know, with so many different dynamics at play, and you know, you you meet someone and maybe they're happy in the opposite way, you know, as us. It's a great question. So the positive psychology literature has been making attempts over the last twenty years to look at techniques to improve people's happiness. And we can talk about some of those later on in this conversation. But one of the things that's not very technique and almost a prerequisite to any of the other techniques actually working is some level of healthy, happy relationships in our lives. Mm-hmm. I have a question before you go on. Yeah. Does that include our relationship with ourselves? Well, you, that's a stumper. I would okay. say we have to have a decent relationship <laughs> with ourselves too. But, we but, are, but that's a separate issue. Okay. I just wanted to clarify. Issue. Okay. No, that could, yeah, I love it. It's beautifully asked. We are our 21st modern human beings, 21st century modern human beings living in a, in a technologically advanced, all the knowledge we could possibly ever want to access is like just one Google search away. And we think that that sets us apart from past generations, but from a, the hard wiring in our brains we are architecturally the same homo sapiens that existed on earth 150, 200,000 years ago, pre all of this technology. Mm-hmm. Many tribes would have not even figured out fire mm-hmm. at this point, And yet we've got the same brains. And what that means for us is that we need to really think, why have we evolved the brains that we have? And it, it, it may be tempting to say our prefrontal cortex is, evolved into these big thinking machines in order for us to master mathematics and complicated language and then, you know, build tools and technology. And all of that's simply not true. Given that we had these brains prior to any significant technology, Mm -hmm. we can um, deduce that they mostly evolved to manage complex relationships. Okay. So humans did not um, do well as a species because they were strong or fast or they had sharp fangs or any of that stuff. Mm-hmm. We are a, a society that only survives in groups. Mm-hmm. Community-based. Community-based, 100%. And so there's even bizarre things that relatively few animals on Earth have that humans have in a major way. Mirror neurons is one example. I see you nodding, so I can <laughs> see you. Your listeners, I know, won't be able to see you. But, us. but mirror neurons are these brain cells that literally pick up the emotional expression on your face and then repeat it on my face (laughs) in 33 milliseconds. That's 33 one-thousandths of a second. And so it's this amazing thing that before I can even think about, if you give me a, oh, gee, there's something scary in the background. (laughs) Well, thank you. (laughs) She just did it. Um, I will give that look back to you and I won't 
actually have an opportunity to go, hmm, I, I wonder what's going on for Kara. Why is she looking <laughs> frightened? And, you know, I might interrupt the person I'm hanging with and say, hey, excuse me for just saying, Kara, you know, use your words. What's going on for you? It doesn't happen, right? <laughs> we are sharing our emotions instantly because it helped us survive. Mm-hmm. It told us when we all looked relaxed that we could all chill out together, digest the food from whatever we foraged in the morning. And then when somebody sees a tiger coming up behind us, someone gives that oh shucks look and we all instantly are ready to fight or flee. Or flight, yeah. Or flee. At the same time, yeah. And so this is happening at a profoundly serious level in all of our lives all the time. They call that emotional contagion where we're just sharing our emotions almost like we're sharing the air we breathe Mm -hmm. and at the same time humans um, especially modern humans have this arrogance that they call (laughs) the the um i forget what they call it but it's this idea that oh it's called the third party effect and it's this idea that we deny this sharing of emotions it's the same way we deny that advertising is influential somebody says hey does coke do you buy coke because you watch ads like no no i like coke i don't do it because of the ad i buy it because i like the way it's like almost the contrarian in us we don't want to admit we're being told what to do by anything besides our minds exactly right you got it and and yet if somebody says hey do your friends get influenced by the coca-cola ads i go of course they do i mean coca-cola <laughs> would spend billions of dollars on ads if it weren't for that and the same thing's going on from an emotional perspective we we kind of like to think that we're islands emotionally, that it's my responsibility to carry my own emotions where and how I, I should. But the truth is, if I'm in an environment that's quite negative, it will be incredibly difficult work for me to be positive. And on the other hand, if I go to a place where everybody's just bursting with good positive energy, in high likelihood, my own energy will lift somewhere close to where theirs are. Mm-hmm. And, and, and I mean... I was going to say, you can force it. I've seen people in really high energy environments who've decided that they're going to be upset, usually because of a principle. Um, (laughs) And, uh, and I've seen it and you can see that it's like, it's like torturous almost like that's all they're thinking about. Like, they're like, no, I'm thinking about this bad thing. I'm thinking about this bad thing. I'm thinking about this bad thing. You also sometimes see the opposite kind of thing where sometimes people who are in a, a lousy mood and if you can pretend for a moment to be in a good mood and just get with the the flow of the people around you it may feel fake for 30 seconds or 60 seconds or something and then it starts to become real because you be, take on those contagious emotions that are av- available for us like the um like the fake laugh experiment a hundred percent we laugh because other people laugh totally mm-hmm. and we i i when i'm teaching sometimes i show these rather profound videos of um young women taking on neurological conditions of uh, twitching uh, that turned out it was a conversion disorder when they found out later on. But conversion disorder is just when a mental health issue starts to manifest into physical symptoms. Mm-hmm. And young women were actually sending these from one to another to another in this school where this famous research took place, but completely unconsciously, of course. Mm-hmm. Uh, but after a while, you had 22 young women looking like they had this horrendous neurological condition. And everybody was studying whether there was an environmental condition, pollution, or what mm-hmm. the heck was going on. And when psychologists finally kind of figured it out, almost all of them instantly got better. And so the same way that laughing thing happens, when you go to laughing yoga and, and everybody starts laughing in a very sincere way together for no punchline, no real reason to laugh. <laughs> yeah. It's the exact same thing from a negative pathological perspective as the good-natured fun of everybody laughing together. 
Well, and so I have a question and you may not have the answer and that's okay, but um, if you do, that's great. Uh, mirror neurons, how does that differ from the concept of empathy? I expect that they're related. I don't know that for a fact, um, but when we immediately express the same emotion as the other person around us, mm -hmm. we can imagine that evolved for these important um, uh, survival reasons. Yeah. And I would imagine that empathy uh, evolved for exactly the same reason. And there's a there's a, 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 a kind of connection between empathy and altruistic behaviors. It's when, if I can feel your emotion mm -hmm. in, in a genuine way, so I'm empathetic, then if I want to help you with those emotions, if it's, let's say you're feeling sad, mm -hmm. Um, what's what was the reason why we evolved as a species that would get a reward from that behavior? Mm -hmm. Why and would we behave altruistically? It doesn't make sense. Unless I was saying, Carrie, I'm going to be nice to you for the next 20 minutes so that you'll give me 10 bucks at the end, right? <laughs> that wouldn't be very altruistic. But we don't very motivated that way as humans. We are motivated altruistically spontaneously. Mm -hmm. And so scientists are speculating. There's no, we don't know the exact reason why we evolved that way. But probably, again, from a complex tribal relationship perspective, if I was altruistic today and helped you find a lost child, mm -hmm. and tomorrow you um, managed to forage a bunch of really yummy berries and you share some of those with me, and the day after somebody um, caught a rabbit and we we're all going to eat that, it was this idea that within the tribal society, what went around, what what went around, came around. Mm -hmm. And so we, from an evolutionary perspective, we felt psychologically rewarded by being altruistic because it made us happy. Mm -hmm. Behave altruistically, we get happy. And we go, why would the, we evolve that way? Oh well, it's because what sharing goes around comes around, and, and that's probably the reason why we evolved empathy. Well, and to your point too, I would add, and this is just speculation, of course, um, but I think that, you know, what is the reward of empathy? I think it really comes down to that whole mirror neurons thing too. Like in an immediate way, I walk into a room and my friend or even my enemy, anyone, if I'm stuck in that room with them and they're sad, it's to my advantage as far as what I get to feel if they're feeling better. Because my brain wants to mirror what what they're showing, what they're displaying. And I don't really want to have to mirror something that's really crappy. Does that yeah, make sense? Brilliant observation. And I think mostly we are unconscious about these dynamics. So if mm -hmm. we come into the room and we might see somebody who's your enemy and they're looking really miserable, I'm like, oh, this poor sap, but I'm, I'm lucky. I'm glad he's feeling so miserable and he kind of deserves it anyway. But the interesting thing is your instinct was to say, but I want to make them feel happy because that'll probably make me feel happy, which is a mm -hmm. brilliant observation of probably how you are hardwired and we're all hardwired at some level to behave that way. And, yeah. and there's contradictory hardwiring too, especially amongst men where we're competing for status so we can get mates and all that kind of crazy stuff. But some part of us wants to be helpful to other members of our tribe. Well, yeah. And, and I mean, this might be slightly off topic, but it's what it made me think of is that like, I, I look around and I see like there's a lot of negative in the world and people love to point it out, but I see like a lot of positive. And I understand that there's a lot of things that are for like less helpful that we're taught um, as far as societally and things like that. But I think deep down, humans understand that having an altruistic nature, having community, having people get along is beneficial to every single individual that's a part of that community. 
Yes, like you're so <laughs> right. Um, and here's the tragedy in what you've just said, though, is that intuitively we all know that community is essential. We all mm -hmm. get it. And at the same time, our society is becoming progressively, decade after decade after decade, lonelier and more um, uh, alienated from the communities we're living in. And it, it, there's something kind of ironic about it because we've never lived in bigger groups mm -hmm. and yet we've never been lonelier. And, and there was one interesting study out of the UK, it's now maybe a bit dated, but 50% um, of men only had one person in their life that they could speak to about something that was important to them. And it was either their wife or their mother. And um, almost 35% of men said they had no male friend they could share a, a deep personal uh, concern with. And so, it's, and the problem is a little bit worse for men than for women because mm -hmm. women do the Absolutely. social thing a little yeah. bit more naturally. And so there's a profound loneliness and disengagement and cynicism that's come across for a lot of men. But I, I don't want to um, pretend that somehow women have it made. We are also, as uh, women are also in society, no longer living in, you know, and I, when I use the word tribes, I mean, just imagine ancient groups of people living yeah, together. Like the dynamic that comes with tribes is what you mean, yeah. Exactly, that's what I mean by tribes. And so we can imagine that most tribes of 100,000 years ago would have consisted of 30 to 100 members and a big tribe would have been 500 members. And that would be enough people that you could know each and every one of them by name. Mm -hmm. And each and every one of them, you know, their family connections. And most of us would be kin, you know, brothers, cousins, sisters, aunts, uncles, and all that kind of stuff. And there would be the this collective identity that wasn't um, contrived or, or you didn't have to in any way have a social construct that you developed in your brain about it. It was just real. We're yeah. in this together. These are my family. We live or die because we're... Because um, we're together. Exactly. Because we're together. And we well, don't have that today. And I don't, uh, I don't disagree at all about uh, the, you know, men having it harder in that particular way. I've, I've observed that myself in a lot of the men in my life. Uh, I'm like, I'm like, oh, did you tell, like, like my boyfriend, for example, I'm like, oh, did you tell your, you know, your friend or your coworker or whatever about this thing? And he's like, no. And I was like, what? I'm like, it's so exciting for you. And he's like, yeah, but I talked to you about it, you know? And it's just like, and I see that so much. And I think, I think a lot of that has to do with the idea that men aren't supposed to be emotional, you know, um, the idea that anger is the only appropriate emotion for men, which is so crazy to me, but that's a whole other topic. No, it's a good um, one though. Like <laughs> I think men have uh, kind of three acceptable emotions. Uh, one is angry, which you totally pointed out. And then the other one that is common and in, in, in our modern social sphere is goofy happy, you know, mm -hmm. being a bit of a, a clown. Mm -hmm. And then the third one in some socially appropriate situations is horny. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah. Right. And this is a too, way too limited <laughs> a range of emotions for men. And there's kind of an interesting thing. It's a part of a nature and nurture thing. We know by nature that at very, very young ages, like just weeks out of the womb, little baby girls will make longer eye contact with their adult caregivers. Oh. They are tuning socially in face to face more readily than little boys do. And by the time they're four year old, four years old, little girls will very quickly know how to do a tea party, right? You know, and they'll have their little yep. <laughs> animals and the one mom or a sister or somebody to come and sit down and do that. And so they're they're doing this social construct for their play. Whereas little boys, 
obviously largely driven by um, nature as much as nurture, maybe more by nature, little boys will do what they call parallel play. So two little four-year-old boys will both have a toy car and they'll be ride, driving them around in the room and not really engaging with each other, but they're sharing the play of driving the toy car. Mm -hmm. And now you take that nature and nurture uh, combination and fast forward 20 years in your life and little girls will have learned a lot of great social skills looking inward at one another and boys will need things activities to do together mm -hmm. in order to have friendships because if we said hey why don't you call up your best buddy from high school and have a chat on the phone they might do that once a year and go I don't, well, I don't know what the heck I'm doing that for but if I were <laughs> to say can you go play hockey or baseball or bowling or or go work, work on your cars or whatever give them activity to do and men will look not at one another but at the thing that they're doing and have deep engaging relationships in that activity. Yeah, that's absolutely, that's like, I've never heard it described like that, but that's very, very in line with what I've observed. Um, so like, I think loneliness is one of the, the big barriers that we have to happiness. Um, do, can you think of any other ones that are standout issues that, that a lot of people are facing before we get to, you know, maybe talking about some of the techniques around absolutely. those? The one kind of blanket barrier to um, happiness, besides the breakdown in good, healthy social relationships that we just talked about, but the other major one to think about is what I'm going to call materialism. Okay. And by that, I don't just mean the desire to possess more stuff, mm -hmm. although that is part of it too. We live in a society where you know, you're a relatively young woman, you're in your 30s, mm -hmm. early 30s. I, I can forget what statistic it would be, but the number of advertisements that you confront daily that have a basic function, the way that advertising essentially works is to say, um, Kara, there's something wrong with your life <laughs> and we are the remedy for it. To come mm -hmm. and create a sense of lack. Yeah, give you a sense of lack and that we're the, we're the fix. And um, in weird little ways, they do satisfy us. At the time when I first get the new pair of sneakers, <laughs> I'm a little happier. And two weeks later, they're collecting dust or getting dirty in the closet. And I have no emotional connection to them any more than any other pair of sneakers. Mm -hmm. And so we get in this, this um, addiction to consuming that is 100% of every day we live being fed by lies and advertising saying you need to consume more. Mm -hmm. And so that's one kind of materialism. And we simply know from tons of study that the possession of many things makes us no happier than the possession of the basic necessities. Mm -hmm. Perhaps less happy because you, because you have a weight that comes with everything that you own, a responsibility. Brilliantly observed. Absolutely right. So even when you research, there's kind of different ways that people measure that. If you say to people, I'm looking back at the past 24 hours, how happy were you in this day? Rich people are no happier than people who have their basic necessities met. And then you say, if you look at your overall demands on your life and how stressful it is, uh, you know, what's your life satisfaction when you consider that? People who have their basic necessities comfortably met score higher than people who are very wealthy because they're mm -hmm. looking after their helicopter and their four houses and <laughs> exactly. all that crap. And um, so they're, they're less happy. Now, now, now here, the, both those groups, the people who have their basic needs well met and the very rich score much better on each of those kinds of surveys than people who are impoverished. Mm -hmm. 
So comfortably meeting our basic needs is essential. If I'm worried about, can I pay my rent? Am I going to be able to food on the table tomorrow? I'm not going to be very happy. Mm -hmm. But if I'm confident that I can meet my basic needs, so not just this week, but next week, I'm pretty sure, and next year, I'm pretty sure, Mm -hmm. then I will be about as happy as you can ever be. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. From a a wealth perspective. Yeah, yeah. As far as money buying happiness. Exactly right. And and so this materialism goes beyond that too. In, in addition to wanting to buy, buy, buy stuff, our society in a way that has just exponentially got worse in the last decade or two has so much um, emphasis on status. Mm-hmm. So again, if I'd been in a tribe uh, 100,000 years ago, there would have been a clear pecking order. Uh, and I, I wouldn't know where I am in, the, in the, the, the pecking order. And yet I would have felt profoundly accepted and loved mm-hmm. for the most part. And today uh, you look at, and I think in particular of young women, the social media environment they're in, where not only do you have to keep up with Taylor Swift and I don't know who else is famous these days, Kim <laughs> Kardashian and all, all these women who are... Um, amazingly talented or just ridiculously sexy in uh, disproportionate, unrealistic ways. And that was bad enough a decade ago. And now you look at today where not only do you have to look at those famous people, but your friends in school and the girl you know across town, they're all on Instagram scantily clad and taking pictures of their major accomplishments and their best days, water skiing with their friends. And it's all this um, completely unrealistic highlight moments from my life that are often fabricated for Instagram, Mm -hmm. we're all feeling like, well, my life doesn't measure up. So we have this profoundly disoriented uh, and and negative mood-inducing exposure to materialistic influences in our society. Yeah. Um, I have I have another question. Please. Lots of questions. Um, so how would you, like, I guess, would you say that the concepts of, like, productivity as, as a value in humans, for example, and, like, achievements, not necessarily just looking good and stuff like that, but, like, that that falls into materialism as well? Brilliant. Of course, it totally does. The, what we are taught in our society from a social conditioning perspective is to acquire and accomplish. Mm-hmm. So um, we're, we're told, get the right education, work hard in school, then get the right job, marry Mr. or Mrs. Wright, get the promotion, get the house in the suburbs, get 2.2 kids and a white picket <laughs> fence and multiple cars in the driveway. Mm-hmm. And, and when you get each of those accomplishments, you're supposed to be then told that then you're allowed to be happy. Mm-hmm. When you've mm-hmm. accomplished the right thing or acquired the right thing, you get to be happy. And so as young children, we learn this pretty well. We, we get on this little um, hamster wheel and we run like crazy and then we <laughs> accomplish whatever our parents or our teachers told us was, was the thing that was societally valued. And we hop off the hamster wheel and momentarily somebody praises us and recognizes us and says, nice accomplishment, we feel happy. And then shockingly, you know, an hour or two later, it fades to zero. And we, the only formula we've been told to be happy is to get back on the friggin' hamster wheel and run and accomplish and acquire something further. And that's exactly what this materialism that I'm talking about uh, is is about and you put your finger right on it it's this overemphasis on productivity for what <laughs> you know am I being am I going to be the most I like I, years ago when I was in my corporate career um, I at a very young age got some very senior roles 
And I was fortunate that I was still young enough that I kind of was able to make that observation that, is this the corporate ladder I want to climb? Mm-hmm. You know, people were saying to me, oh, you could be the youngest vice president ever in this organization. And it was a really interesting thought. And I was like, well, why would I want that? Yeah. <laughs> and so then you lean your ladder on a different wall and you say, no, I'm going to scale that wall instead. And it's scary because it's counter to everything you've been told. <laughs> and I mean, even though I'm super conscious of this, I'm a product of my socialization too. And so there's always something I want to acquire or accomplish something more. But whenever I'm thoughtful about it, then I can turn from those materialistic values and go to something that I'm going to call spiritual. And by spiritual, I don't mean religious in any fashion. Mm-hmm. I just mean opposite of material. Yeah. Uh, if it's spiritual, it's about my relationships, my um, metacognition, my thoughts about my thoughts, my purpose in life, um, my relationship to myself, which you mentioned at the beginning of this interview. And so as soon as I start looking at those things, there's indeed way more opportunity for me to get long-lasting um, intrinsic versions of happiness than that materialistic rat race will ever give me. That uh, That is very, very true. And I, as much as anyone, am, you know, trying to figure out my way through that materialism because, like, I actually find, just kind of to your point, is that eschewing materialism in the sense of actual material goods is is surprisingly easy you know you do the I can't remember her name but the whole does it bring does it spark joy yeah Marie Kondo you know and and it's it's a it's a process that's it's not necessarily that it's easier but it's very well laid out you know there's a lot of very clear instructions on how to let go of material goods what there isn't (laughs) is is clear instruction uh you know and 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 hopefully you know people unpack it more and more and it becomes clearer but, you know, of letting go of the idea of productivity. Like I know a hack, quote unquote, that I use is I tell myself, sometimes the most productive thing you can do is rest. Because sometimes I can't get out of the productivity mode, but I'm like, oh, but if I frame rest as productive, then, <laughs> then I'm doing okay. Does that make sense? Yeah, oh, it's beautifully said. So brilliant, Karen. Absolutely. I mean, we, you know, we even the, the way that we sleep as, as humans in the modern world is ridiculous. No humans before 1800 had the behaviors that we have now, where we think because artificial light can be turned off at 10 p.m. and turned on at 6, p, 6 a.m., that that's where the period we should sleep for. All the, the historical literature from multiple languages and different societies had this notion of first and second sleeps. Mm-hmm go to bed when it got dark, you know, after a little while, because a candle would only light the room so well for productivity purposes. So we'd go to bed and we may not be tired yet. It'd be a good time to have sex, to pray, to maybe write very um, quietly, but under the candlelight, but we do very calm things. And then we'd wake up at some time around three in the morning and we might be up for an hour or two. They called that the first awakening. Mm-hmm. And you, again, it'd be a great time for sex or to pray or to write or, or just be um, thoughtful, mindful. And because it still wasn't going to be d- uh, light again for several hours, we'd go back to sleep and we'd get our second sleep. And then we'd have the second awakening where we'd get on with our day. Yeah, where we'd start our day. Yeah. And it was it probably we were getting more sleep and a higher quality of sleep in this relationship to self 
that was kind of forced into our lifestyle because we had time to spend quietly with ourselves. Mm-hmm. That's a really good point. And I'm now thinking, how can I make my schedule so I can do that? But I'm not, I'm not sure how to talk to Matt. Um, <laughs> but uh, okay. So like, there are a lot of barriers. So what, what does someone do like about, you know, say relate? Well, I mean, really about any of this, what are some techniques, some I touched briefly on mindfulness and the research mm-hmm. is amazing. So it's just, it's so good. And, and in as little as eight weeks, a person who's learning a mindful, med- let's call it meditation, but there's other mm-hmm. mindful practices too. But if someone is learning to meditate for just 20 minutes a day, mm-hmm. you can take a functional magnetic resonance imaging, an MRI of their brain. An fMRI, the yeah. fMRI at the beginning of the experiment and eight weeks later, scan their brain again and you can literally see changes in their left prefrontal cortex. This is part of the brain that's associated with happiness and contentedness and emotional regulation. And so in just eight weeks, it's amazing what can happen in terms of the change. And um, we, most of us, it's, it's uh, meditating feels a little bit like hard work. It's like going to the gym. Mm-hmm. And unlike going to the gym where after a year, you might be able to see a big bicep and go, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, meditation after 30 years for me is still one of those things that I'm kind of going, well, I don't really know how different I was from a year ago. <laughs> I just can't see it. And yet I know enough about the research to know that it's not just an altered trait in the moment or an altered state in the moment. It's not just saying, oh, I feel a little different because I've, I've brought some peace. It's that I've actually got an altered trait. I'm a different human being mm-hmm. after weeks and months and years of meditation and a, and a healthier human being with all kinds of advantages like um, prolonged task for, focus, um, a better physical health, uh, better relationships, um, even a better sex life. We know the research shows. Like, so there's just this huge array of benefits from mindfulness. So that's one technique. And, and I would encourage your listeners to pick up some kind of mindfulness well, practice. And I think um, I think that you you said something that I just want to um, reiterate because I think it's really important is that even though we can't necessarily do a one to one comparison like we can with before and after pictures, the the changes that I've seen in my life from mindfulness and most of the people I've talked to about it, it it's less about what has changed sort of internally and more about what's changed externally and how you interact with the relationships to different things that you have in your life and that's where you see that evidence. That's beautiful. So there's why it's a, the, the term spiritual really works, right? Is that um, by that, I don't mean religious, but meditation has historically always been associated with a mm-hmm. religious practice. And we don't have to associate it with religion in the modern context, but we can clearly see that it's changing our relationships to our external world. And simply by practicing mindfulness, I would think that minimalism and a less materialistic life comes more readily. Mm-hmm. We're Absolutely. more self-aware. Yeah, I'm more aware that like, oh, this second coffee pot that I have is really just stressing me out and I can get rid of that. And then, then I have that much less stress. I might have a coffee pot that I need to get rid of. (laughs) 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 Um, So what are some, what are some other techniques that that spring to mind for you? Um, Mindfulness is obviously very good. Very good. There's a really interesting uh, concept called flow or being in the zone. Mm Mm-hmm. And the lead researcher is a guy named Michael, Mihaly, Cheek Sent Mihaly. And he wrote a book called Flow, The Optimal Psychology of Wellbeing. And uh, he basically broke down what flow is. And we all know what it kind of feels like. Like, you mm-hmm. know, athletes often are associated with this, where you say, oh, I'm skating down the right wing. I've got the puck on my, 
my stick and I, I'm just totally in the moment. And then somebody yells over the bench, hey, Paul, how are you doing? <laughs> and I would go, well, you know, I'd probably lose the puck up my stick and look and I'd be angry at the person, right? I'd break my state of flow. And um, we get flow in all kinds of places in our life besides athletics. Even you and I, Karen, I can tell in this conversation, the way that we're making eye contact through Zoom, we're both in a state of flow. We're highly mm -hmm. engaged. We, we aren't thinking about our next things that we have to do on our list. We're not um, worried about our hunger or our thirst or whether we have to go to the bathroom. We just kind of, time changes. We're fully present with the activity we're doing. And usually there's some kind of um, balancing act between the demand of the task and the skills that we've got. Mm -hmm. So if I was playing hockey with four-year-olds, it wouldn't be very, very flow exercise. I'd yeah. skate around them like pylons and no big deal. I wouldn't be in flow. <laughs> and if the NHL players were playing hockey against me, I wouldn't be in flow either. They'd be crushing me. Mm -hmm. So it's that right balance of skill and the demand, this concentration we've got, single-mindedness, where we lose track of time. And whenever we're there and whatever we're doing, it might be um, a conversation. It might, we find that art is a good example. We know from research that there's more flow moments for most people in their occupations than in their private life, than their Interesting. Uh, home, which is really concerning. It says that what we're doing in our home lives aren't as good for us as they quote unquote could and should be. Mm -hmm. because lots of us are spending too much time. I'm as guilty of this, watching YouTube and uh, <laughs> binge watching things on Netflix. And they're not usually very high quality or high flow moments. Mm -hmm. Whereas most of our work, when, we're, when we've got a, a reasonable job, there's going to be moments in the day when like I'm totally engaged in the task that's been put in front of me. Mm -hmm. It's kind of weird, isn't it? That we might be happier well, at work than we are elsewhere. And that, that totally, like that, really resonates with me because when I think of the moments when I've most been in flow, it's things like um, using uh, using Excel to to create, you know, not just like spreadsheets, but like putting math into it and how do I make this work or creating art or all sorts of things like that. And I think seeking more flow in our lives is, is incredibly valuable. Right. So the things that we know bring us flow, do more of that. And if you're not so sure where you get your flow, it's a good idea to look at your areas of your strengths because usually the things that we're naturally good at, we got good at them because they brought us full long ago. So if you think that I'm kind of verbal and like my role as a teacher, it's true. And as a little <laughs> kid, I um, you know, was the one who always had my hand up in class and, oh, I know the answer. Mm -hmm. And in order to get my, I was the youngest of six kids. So in order to get my mother's attention, I would follow her around the house and tell her nonstop stories. And I'm sure she wasn't really listening. She'd go, yes, dear, whatever, dear. <laughs> I was entertained and engaged in my life because of that. And so as time has gone by, now I'd make my living pretty much as a teacher of this subject matter that we're talking about. And I'm, I'm, I'm good at it. I know I am. And, and so to work in areas that you know you're strong at, you're going to find that you're in more flow there than in other places. So it's a good examination to say, hey, what were the moments when I felt great in life, when I really had a, a success that really has lasted with me and I'm proud of? Well, whatever those activities were that brought you those, do more of that. And correct me if uh, if I'm wrong or if uh, if this isn't in line with what you're suggesting, but I would say, you know, like you mentioned, if you if you aren't at the skill level that you want to be, it can be frustrating and it can take you out of flow. But if it's something that you have a lot of passionate passion about or are passionate about, I know how to use words, I swear. Um, then then take the time to like really give it a chance. You know, like if you enjoy drawing but you get frustrated, you know 
maybe take five minutes every day to draw and and in a month if you're still not feeling the flow like I, I mean maybe maybe this doesn't line up with what you're saying but to me that's something well I think what you are saying um does fit with positive psychology really well in terms of habit formation so a lot of the time we have this um, f- fixed mindset about our lives. I'm good or bad at this. Mm-hmm. I'm not a good artist, and so therefore I, I don't draw. I'm not good at math, so I, I don't, you know, I use a calculator. Um, and a lot of us came out of our childhood, childhoods, with a lot of fixed mindsets about a lot of things. Mm-hmm. And the research offers this opportunity for us to look at a growth mindset, which is the one that says, um, Gee, when I apply myself to something that I want, I can get better at it. And all the failures that I have as I'm learning are the stepping stones to success. Mm -hmm. And I don't get to success unless I have a lot of failures. And so that's true of the example you gave, where if you want to increase your strength on anything, and we all want to be really good, especially as adults, we don't tolerate our our failing (laughs) selves very much. Um, We just need to look at what kids do. Mm-hmm. You know, and maybe the best example is a one-year-old. A, a one-year-old will fall on their butt over and over and over, <laughs> and, over and over again as they as they're learning to walk, and they never um, then articulate. I don't want to walk. I I'm a, I can't. I don't know how to walk, and I'm a <laughs> this failure. Is too hard. <laughs> yeah, it's too hard. They. I'm sure they have moments of frustration, but they get up and up and up and up and up and up and up in little increments until at some point walking is natural, and that's how we learn to drive. Right? Mm-hmm. Oh, we were nervous. We drove badly, and we, you know, <laughs> stopped badly at the stop signs, and our parents were pulling their hair out. And yet, at some point, we got to the point where not tr- we we are such good drivers that, in spite of the fact that we think we should be paying attention, the reality is we were thinking in our heads about where we're going, who we're going to meet with, or we're having an excited conversation with the person in the passenger seat. And yet, somehow, we don't kill pedestrians, we don't speed, we don't go through too many red lights. We drive very, very well because we automate those behaviors. And it's through a million repetition, repetitious behaviors of having driven previously. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So um, before we move on to finding out where other people can can get more of you. Yeah. Um, is there any more techniques or anything else that you want to add? Maybe I'll add one last little easy one for all of your listeners. And it's got really, really good science behind it. And it's this idea that we ask ourselves what's going well. And, and some people call it a gratitude practice. And I don't like that word because I feel like my mother's looking down and saying, now, what do you say? And I'm supposed to look yeah. up and say, oh, thank you. And I don't really feel... Be grateful. Yeah, yeah I've been there. Right. I feel the same way. So. <laughs> okay. So take the word gratitude out of the the picture and simply say, I'm going to look in my life for what's going well. And the way to ritualize this is to say at the same time, every single day, look to your past 24 hours and write down three things that went well. That's dead easy. Every day, look to your past 24 hours and write down three things that went well. And if you don't attach it to an existing habit, you probably won't get to it. So I you know, if you brush your teeth at the same time every day, do it then. If you eat lunch at the same time every day, do it then. You know, some attach it to some existing habit. For me, I wake up every day. At least so far. <laughs> <laughs> and so before I even get out of bed, I write down my three things that went well. And Kara, the reason why this is so important, this, this technique, is not that it stops us in the moment and makes us feel grateful for what happened yesterday. Uh, even though that may happen. But a lot of times as I write down my three things that went well, I'm not feeling particularly grateful for them. I'm just Mm -hmm. doing my list because it's my habit. But literally what I'm doing is I'm training my brain 
to look for those things. Mm-hmm. You're changing the filters. I, that's right. It's, this is the neuroplasticity. I'm literally laying down wiring in my brain to recognize things that go well for me more readily. And of course, most of us, we've laid down paths in our minds to look for things that aren't going well. Mm-hmm. And I'm not criticizing this. That's natural for all of us. But to lay down an alternative pathway that says, I readily, with automation, see things that are going well in my life. Mm-hmm. Well, my positivity just is going to escalate way, way up there. So much so when this research was first done on these observing three things every day, uh, research was first done, everybody had a baseline level of happiness. And three weeks later, people who were paid to participate became much happier. And what they were really fascinated by, because it was so much increased happiness, is they said, let's go back and track these people down six months later and see if what's going on for them. And they learned two really interesting things. The first is that because all of the participants were paid to participate, no one was doing it anymore. <laughs> they all quit, which is hilarious. And then the second thing was they were all still happier than their baseline six months and three weeks later. Yeah, because so the synapses and all that. Powerful change to their brain. That totally makes sense. I, oh, that's one of my favorite parts of this. Like the whole, I mean, the whole like study, I guess, like, like, you know, like, like talking to people about all this stuff is, is learning that like we can basically manipulate reality just by, by learning how to, how our brains work and how to affect it in different ways. It's, it's, it's like a hair short of magic. It's so cool. <laughs> and, and you are not wrong when you say you're manipulating reality because our reality is nothing other than our perceptions. And so if my perception is a bunch of crappy stuff is happening in my life and other people might even validate it. Oh, you're right. That's mm-hmm. bad. That's bad. That's bad. But if on the, other hand, on the other hand, if I said, hey, look at all these good things that happened today. Again, third party people might come and witness with me and say, hey, those, those are good things. It's just perception. So where can people where can people find uh, more from you or more about you? Um, I am my I have two websites. The one that's mostly helping people who are individuals is called happinessexperts.ca. I'm mm-hmm. Canadian, so it says uh, <laughs> suffix that ends .ca. Happinessexperts.ca. And my commercial work for corporate entities and conferences and stuff like that is paulchrismer.com. Okay, perfect. Yeah. So for anyone who's wondering what he's referring to, he also helps corporations to incorporate more happiness in their employees, right? It's yeah. fantastic. So you ready to play a little game? Oh, I forgot about this part, Kara. <laughs> okay, yes. Nervously, I say yes. Bring it on. Okay, so this uh, this is a little bit different than I usually do. So instead of doing another place, I'm just doing a different generation. So you're going to guess Gen Z slang and... I might, you know, I'm I'm reading a list, so I shouldn't get any of it wrong. (laughs) Um, So what does cap or no cap mean? Oh, gee. This would be baseball players versus the back catcher who doesn't have to wear a baseball hat? (laughs) No, it means cap means you're lying. um, And no cap means that you're not lying. So if it was like, I saw Sammy Sosa, no cap. That would mean I saw him, I'm not lying. Awesome. Okay. I really appreciate you putting it in context for me too. Thank you. Um, what does dummy thick mean? Um, well, thick is these voluptuous, curvy women. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Dummy thick. Uh, I, I don't know. And I don't want to say anything inappropriate. <laughs> well, it's it's essentially, yeah, extra, extra thick. 
Okay. So like, yeah, like saw this girl on Insta. She was dummy thick. It's dummy like, thick. Got it. Thanks for helping me out with this. Um, what does fire mean? Fire. Got me on that one, Kara. It means very cool. So if you put out a music video, I might say that shit's fire. That shit's fire. Got yeah. it. Okay. <laughs> and if you see the fire emoji online, that's almost always what it means. Is that this is great. Okay. Um, what does dead mean? Um, I think you mean it in some context other than the traditional one. Yeah. <laughs> I have no idea. What does dead mean? It means um, laughing so hard I died. Ah. So if you see the little skull and crossbones emoji, that means that they think something's funny. So, Carrie, you wouldn't believe what a good service this is to me. I have two <laughs> young men, sons, 19 and 22, and they communicate via emoji some of the time. I, I'm going to decode <laughs> it after all. <laughs> okay, so I'm going to do two more. I might have said I'll only do one more, but I'm going to do two. Um, what does hits different mean? Hits different. I don't know. Goes their own way. Uh, it's really a positive phrase that emphasizes something good. So if I were to say, you know, that new, okay, I'm trying to think of a Gen Z artist, uh, that new Selena Gomez song, Hits Different, means that it's better than her other songs or other songs by other similar artists. Well, the positive psychology guy needs to bring that one in. Hits Different, <laughs> got it. And then the last one I'm going to do, and uh, I already know it. So what does slaps mean? Slaps. I've actually seen that one. I think I should know it, but I don't. It is a descriptor for a good song. So if someone says that song slaps, they also might say it's a bop. Um, uh -huh. <laughs> so thank you so much, Paul. I uh, really appreciate your time today and getting to chat with you about all of this stuff. I think it was very useful. And uh, if you want to add anything, you can now or... I'll just say, Carrie, you're a great interviewer. Uh, if the things that you picked up on what I was saying was always so in keeping with where we were going with the conversation. It was a pleasure to be here. Lots of fun. Thank you so much. And to my audience, I love you. Bye.